All right, y'all, it's spring, and you know what that means. It's time to start planning our summer festival traveling. Yep, it's time to get into my Airbnb bag cross-country, a.k.a. uh, time to visit my homes all across the country. And you know what I never think about? Why not list my own spot on Airbnb and host some folks at my house? I mean, my house is cute. Yes, let's make money while we're spending money. Just trying to help you out, man, because your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news. Sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work and traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. Questlove Supreme is a production of iHeartRadio. What's up, everybody? This is Sugar Steve from Questlove Supreme. As we celebrate the holiday season, this felt like a worthy two-part classic to revisit. Here is Mariah Carey. We recorded this in the middle of the night, but it was worth it. Mariah was promoting her book, and she was an open book to us. This is a really free and fun conversation with one of the biggest superstars of music. Part one originally aired January 13th, 2021, but this is timeless. Enjoy, everybody, and happy holidays and a healthy new year from Team Supreme and everybody at Questlove Supreme. Ladies and gentlemen, happy 2021. Let me just start a preface that this this intro might be 12 minutes, but I'll I'll cut to the chase. Um, I consider... All Quest Love Supreme episodes to be top notch. Some of my favorite guests ever, but you know, a few guests might shine a little bit brighter. I won't even say the most, but few few of our guests on the show shine just a little bit brighter. Um, as our fortune have it in 2021, this particular episode uh, will shine very bright. Notice the the holiday Christmas motifs I'm using. Uh, I will say that for the last three decades, our guest has been music royalty out the gate 15 studio albums 72 singles over 200 million records sold globally i'll say that five four of those records um mariah daydream music box and emancipation have sold 100 million copies combined just those four she is the best selling female artist globally and she practically she literally owns christmas um her (laughs) Her For immortal, real. <laughs> all I want. Yes, Christmas is twelve months away, but still, she owns Christmas. Her single "All I Want for Christmas" is the biggest-selling song in the world. 
in all parts of the globe, not even just the United States, for the second time already, um, it is it has broken crazy records. It it's the all time biggest selling streamed uh, song. I didn't even know that at, at seventy seventeen point two million uh, for streams in one day. Um, it's the first single by a female artist in history to be uh, certified five times platinum in the UK, which is not an easy feat at all. She's the first artist to rank number one on the chart in four distinct decades. Four distinct decades. She reached number one this year, uh, officially on the UK singles charts after 26 years, a gap in between. It's the first holiday song in history to be number one in the US and the UK at the same time. Um, so fuck White Christmas by Bing Crosby. Um, <laughs> uh, her Apple special is number one in more than 100 countries across the world. Uh, her book is a New York Times bestseller and number one on Audible. I, I have to say, uh, I'll be here all damn day. Ladies and gentlemen, mm. how did we get the one and only Mariah Carey on Quest Love Supreme? Please welcome Ate her. It. Thank you. Yes. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Thank We've you. Officially made it. We've arrived. Yes. <laughs> we we have made it. <laughs> no, I I listen, I've been stressing out about this because I know that I am not queen of technology, nor am I queen of musical technical moments of discussion. <laughs> Look, we are we are no, I really. swear we are four nerds that just like music. Like Trust me, I'm not going to. Oh, okay, I, I do. Your first question is okay. So your Yamaha DX7 patches on your first album? No, <laughs> right. Mariah hit me earlier today. Like, please don't ask me those nerdy stuff that you ask about, like keyboard patches and all this. Oh, stuff. thank God. I mean, you know, that's cool. That's yeah. She yeah, like yeah, hates, <laughs> hates that as well. Um, how how are you today? I'm good. I'm good. Actually, I. It's we're having a little celebratory moment. So you mentioned Christmas and I just want to say this is totally off topic, but I'll just say, say it anyway. Yes, um, so we go. had an incredible Christmas this year and um, all the things, all the things. But um, because it's COVID and I can't really I haven't gone anywhere in months, almost a year, mm -hmm. um, just out of paranoia about the whole thing. And it's not paranoia. It's just being safe. It's science. But yeah. Um, yeah, so so here I am enjoying like my first little party and and cheers to you guys. So uh, oh, cheers, uh, cheers. I'm gonna have me flash as we talk, but, but I did want to say um, thank you for having me. And yeah, I was a little bit like clearly I'm no Greg filling games by any stretch of the imagination. Wow, nice one. Wait, and, and by the way, I did hear when he when you said, "Oh, the Mariah Carey voice to men elevator," and he was like, "Well, that's the Greg Filling Games elevator." And I'm like, "That's cool, but can they pay me back? Like, can can the Hit Factory give me those millions of dollars back that it used to cost to record wow. shit?" Oh, <laughs> I'm sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. Did I keep real for them. I'm sorry. Nah, this is how we need to keep it. This question yeah. supreme. Talk that shit. <laughs> No, it's not. It's it's nothing. It's just that, really, I can't even imagine how much money people used to spend in on recording. You know, to record their albums or whatever they're recording in these major studios, like just to be in a big studio. I know how I felt. Lockouts. You know? yes. I, I see you because come on, just to be there, just to say I'm at the Hit Factory on blah 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 Street. 
I'm at right track, track. I'm at quad, I'm at whatever, but here, and I don't know if we're like, I'm at quad, but <laughs> I'm right. just saying like. <laughs> Wait, did you ever record at quad? Of course I have, yes. You went to Tupac Central? I wow. I lived at Tupac Central. Yes, I did. We and recorded, I recorded you there too. We recorded there too, Quest Love Supreme. I know that, but yeah. I would expect us to be there. It's <laughs> funny. That's so well, the same type of thing that goes on in terms of people's perception of me. Like, yeah, I went to quad. Yeah, I went. Yeah. I'm not going to say. But I'm not fine. saying that recording at uh, something high level like Sony or D&D Studios is beneath you. But yeah, even I would prefer to be at at its time where Sony was a great studio to record at or electric lady as opposed to D and D or, you know, like electric lady. We love electric lady, of course. And the history yeah. and the whole thing of it all. And I'm not, I need to be the, uh, give the utmost respect to this. The history of it all is everything. And we know the room and the way it sounds in the rooms and the way they sound and everything. We love that. But yes, the glitzy and glamorous new, like, they're not new now, but like, you know, the hit factories of the world give you a different type of a thing. So can I ask now that, you know, for the last 30 years, you've been recording at studios and they were, you know, plentiful in the last three decades. Now they're almost like far and few between. I know Manhattan, there's probably maybe uh, seven left that are still up and running. Um, mm -hmm. and in good condition. Does that worry you a little bit that the, or have you adjusted already? Like, have you made music on your laptop yet? Have you, you know, a la, a la, you know, Kanye and Jay-Z making Watch, Watch the, the Throne, throne in, in, in a hotel room in yeah. bathrooms? Like, have you adjusted yeah. to that yet or? I absolutely have. And, and not because they did it. I, I started doing this. I'm going to say, Probably the Rainbow album. Actually, oh, wow. I'm trying to think. That far back? Yeah, so that's 99. Nice. Yeah. But yeah, I, I started, so um, I went to Randy Jackson, not of the Jackson 5, but Randy Jackson. Um, Randy Dog, no Randy. Randolph, yeah, Randolph. <laughs> um, and we love him. Um, yeah. I said, Randy, I love going other places and recording. So me and my engineer, Brian Garten, we would go, wherever we would just go he would set up a room even if i literally sang in the bathroom he would set up the soundproof um situation and we would run the wires at that point through the he would i didn't i didn't run the wires but he would you know figure it out and we would record that way because i wanted to be whether it's puerto rico wherever i wanted to be for my own peace of mind and like Amir, we've talked about this where you're like, I don't want to be in a comfortable environment. I like to feel like that griminess. And I understand that too. Mm. I don't know that I'm not speaking for you and saying exactly what you said, but I think I'm on the same page as what you were saying. No, right? that's exactly like what yeah. you were saying. I, I like it uncomfortable yeah. with the studio. Yeah, exactly. But I spent, yeah. I feel I've spent enough years in uncomfortable studios, starting from when I was 18 years old, sleeping in the floor, sleeping on the floor in the little studio behind it in the back of the woodshed, which I talk about in my book, but mm -hmm. on the floor sleeping there because I had no money to have a real studio situation. So mm -hmm. anyway, cut to 99 when I started kind of like traveling in order to record. Actually, it happened 
right after the Butterfly album, which is like the year before, because I was just trying to figure out like, where can I do this? How can I do this? And then I connected with my um, couple different engineers that I was working with and we figured it out. So Randy Jackson, back to that, he um, said, and man, I have this studio that you would love in Capri and it's on top of a mountain and blah, blah, blah. I was like, please, like anything you have. So I ended up falling in love with this studio called Capri Studios um, and it's another Italian word that I can't pronounce. But anyway, I, I slept in a little room next to um, the live room and I would I actually recorded several songs there and then when we were doing the Emancipation, I did the, the Charm Bracelet album uh, there and other places. Basically, we just traveled. It was a traveling studio. So it was, you know, Pro Tools, just the setup on his on his laptop and then, you know, making the room so it's not super echoey. Boomy or yeah. yeah, so we had all of that. Like, we had <laughs> we had all of that <laughs> together. And, um, and then I would just love it because, honestly, like, and this is a total sidebar, and I'm sure you're gonna edit this however, or maybe not, but one of the things I learned early on from Luther when we did our for our collaboration on um, Endless Love Endless remake, love. Mm. yes, and he was my, one of my all-time favorite people and tones, like just vocal, just the texture. Mm. And he he felt that there was a similar type of, this is what he said to me, type of like, where you hear um, the harmonics sometimes within the breathy tone. Um, and he was telling me in order to preserve that, which I haven't always listened to and have gotten back into it now, but he was like, you need to be in a place like a very warm and humid climate in order to preserve that. The <laughs> desert, LA, everywhere else is really, really bad for you. Just always remember, like if you are in those places, make sure you have like humidification, like all the humidifiers in the land. Like you need to have that. And I, and I have that. Go ahead. Okay. I have a question. Okay. Okay. So secretly. Yeah. Behind all of your backs and by mm -hmm. all of your, I'm talking about singers. Mm -hmm. I, I quasi eye roll because I always thought that that was psychosomatic. So let me, let me ask a question first. Okay. Is okay. So is that whole thing now? Just to give it a little backstory, uh, you're yeah. at the Tonight Show. Okay. Uh, when Aretha Franklin was alive, mm -hmm. uh, she would only agree to come on the show if we killed all of the air conditioning mm -hmm. in Thirty Rock. And the thing is, is it's not like one particular floor can control the um, the temperature. So. If we turn off the air conditioner for Aretha Franklin, that affects like seven floors, which basically says that we should modernize and update our temperature system. But whenever Aretha comes, it would be a nightmare because then it would be 98 degrees in this building and they would have mm -hmm. to turn off the air at two in the morning the night before. Got it. And then her guy would come in, test it, and then she would, you know, she'd okay. uh, come in. So it said that her voice, her throat were closed or whatever, and that sort of thing. Is that mm -hmm. really true? I believe it to be true. Yeah, it's, and particularly for Aretha. So, Amir, you have me laughing because I know you read the, my memoir, The Meaning of Mariah Carey, shameless yeah. plug, but I'm going to say it because we talk about Aretha and when she, uh, we were doing, what was the, the Divas Live the Divas, first right. year. Yeah, yeah. So, 
she and Ken Ehrlich, we love Ken Ehrlich, yay, Ken yeah. Ehrlich. <laughs> Knowing that if I say something negative, he's going to be pissed off at me like he always gets. But, you know, I'm just being, I'm just keeping in 100. This is what happened. We're, we're not, so, we're not gotcha journalism go. at, at Quest Love Supreme. Trust me. Uh, oh, no, I know you're not, but he has a way of hearing these things. Uh, so, no, Ken's my man. I love Ken. Yes. We love Ken. We love yeah. him. He did my first Vegas show, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> yeah, we love Ken. So, but here's what was happening. So I was like, I'm in a pop culture spiral right now and I can't even believe this. So I'm sitting there and you know, I already know because I, I just told you about Luther and the recommendations. Like that was not in front of any camera. That was not for any reason other than he was like, preserve the tone, right? He was like, just do these things. And I never knew anything about the humidity, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, so when I first sang with Aretha that night, um, obviously I was completely intimidated and and flipping out and scared and everything else right mm -hmm. so we're getting ready to go on the stage and all of a sudden there's this whole hoopla happening and and i hear you guys uh Aretha's really pissed off Ken Ken early comes by and he's like she's not happy i don't know what's gonna go on i'm right just gonna say you know wait and see what happens right so mm -hmm. i'm like this is a, a big moment in my career like it's right at the beginning of butterfly it's all this and all that but again Aretha's the queen, so everybody's waiting. We were basically, we were all there in reverence. I know I was in reverence of the queen. Of course. So, uh, so yeah. So I said, well, maybe because um, he he said she always does this. She always does this. Um, and and he's like, oh, don't worry, she always does this. And I'm like, okay. I go, can I just maybe rehearse with her? Because I don't know what this what's gonna this is gonna be. So I just just want to have like a little moment. So you know, and also you want to be. I had met her before, and we had had you know our moments and great moments, and um, but never this type of thing. So anyway, I, I guess I not I don't remember exactly how it happened, but she ended up saying, okay, we can rehearse in her trailer. So I walk into the trailer and she goes, Mariah, they're playing games. And I'm not having <laughs> the games. Yo. So we won't so we won't be rehearsing tonight. Ooh. And I'm like, who is I'm playing games with Aretha Franklin? Wait, so, first of all, you're spot, how do you do that? Yeah. Your imitation right, that was a great, spot, that was a great you, imitation. How long did it take you to nail that? No, honestly. So you know my friend Trey Lorenz, right? He was just uh, saying you. Yes. Yeah. North Carolina's own yes, Trey Lorenz. Yes. 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 South Carolina, Florence, South Carolina. Oh, home my of bad. Florence. Oh wow. Yeah. He talked about fish sandwiches in all right, South Carolina. Yeah, he You're told right. me. He told me. He just he just texted me tonight. He's like he's like I love him. He he asked me about the fish sandwich. Fish so that's sandwiches. A whole other yes. <laughs> Sandwiches for all, but yeah. <laughs> anyway, so yes, we, me and Trey always, you know, we revere a lot of singers and we don't do it to be funny. Like we're not impersonating them. It's just, you sort of embody them when you're telling the story because this is how it happened. So you know what I mean? I kind of do impersonations on the side, not really, but it's not an impersonation. It's just me telling exactly how it happened. Okay. So anyway, back to the story. So we won't be rehearsing tonight. And I'm like, ah! so anyway, we worked out where they got her. And, and here's one thing that I always say, and this is not that musicians don't know this or people like you guys who are like professors of it all, but being that big Jim Wright, the late big Jim Wright, who we love, yeah. um, my former musical director who passed away, I believe it's almost yeah. three years ago now. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but he was her musical director, Miss Franklin's musical director as well. So he was just like, this is prior to me working with Big Jim. I don't even know what, how I got on this tangent, but he was just like, you know, she takes that queen stuff very, very seriously. So it's a real thing. So he would say, you know, when it's, she's such a, was such a brilliant musician and, and her play, her skills as a piano player, piano player. were insane. And people don't even, they, they don't even realize that. So anyway, that's one of the things that I revere her so, the most about, like that musicality yeah. she had. And I wish people, and I know it's a female thing, and I know it's because her technical, her vocals and her whole thing was so incredible and the whole diva persona mm. that they don't even, they didn't even look at it like, look at this woman play. They missed the right? musicianship. It's the musicianship. And obviously when you watch like, um, I'm trying to think, was it Don't Play That Song or the one where she did, um, she, she's playing live and it's the black and white video and you see her playing um, from back in the day with the whole ensemble. It's beautiful, but anyway. Yeah, I have that one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know what it is. But anyway, you see that only in, in certain moments. Anyway, so they, so cut to Divas Live back again. So they got her a keyboard, put it in her, in her trailer. And, and they're like, okay, you guys can go rehearse this right now. So she had wanted to do Dream Lover. We had a little rehearsal, I guess the day before or something. And then she got out of there because it wasn't, the air conditioning situation wasn't right. So she was like, I really like what you did. I really like your song Dream Lover. I think that would be a wonderful way to go. And I was just like, oh my gosh, she knows Dream Lover. Anyway, I was like, can we just do Chain of Fools? Because I just couldn't, it was too much for my heart to actually hear me yeah. like a song and try to do it. So anyway, <laughs> we were first in the trailer. <laughs> she, she played the song. She played, uh, we figured out the key and what we we're going to do and stuff. And we kind of went back and forth, literally five minutes and, or maybe, maybe 10. And a couple little moments. I never knew she was an Aries. I'm an Aries. We're born two days apart from each mm. other, obviously different years. But she, I said something. She was like, the sense of humor, typical Aries. I was like, <laughs> right. ah, she knows I'm an Aries. So, and, you know, Diana Ross is in those few couple of days. Uh, Billie Holiday, Sarah Vaughn. There's a lot of these divas that I grew up idol Shaka Khan, another Aries, idolizing. And I found this out from Aretha Franklin. I never even knew. Anyway, so we rehearsed a little bit. And, and the thing is, there was a huge, huge issue about the AC. And she goes like this at one point in front of like my whole crew. She goes, what are these people doing that's making them so hot? Why do we need, <laughs> why do we need all the air conditioning? And it just, I was just like, wow, it's really real for her. And if you ever saw when she did, I believe it was for Barack Obama, she did something for the second term and she was uh, out a window and it was cold and it was freezing and she sang, I don't remember what the song was. Uh, I believe it might've been the Star Spangled, I don't remember. The one of the inaugurations, like. Yeah, and when she had the fur on. But she wasn't outside. She, she actually apologized on Larry King live she went and she apologized because she had to and by the way obviously it was more than fine she just wasn't up and down the scale doing a million whatever Mm -hmm. it was great but she felt the need to tell people that the cold air had foiled her and i get it because i know i've been through the hell with that type of thing and way worse but the thing is 
she was that level of like she knew that she wanted to actually in her mind kill it and that mm-hmm. cold air was messing with her so you have to to me whatever somebody says like if you told me i can't play drums when they don't have like a specific light shining like it is what it is like that was her thing but i do believe okay. it's an actual it's an actual it's a physical situation where the throat the cords do tighten up so let me ask because uh obviously you're you're world famous for your octave range what is your octave range your five six i don't know and neither do you mm. <laughs> let's say that's some bullets over broadway one of our favorites what do you want what's going to happen here's the truth you would know better than me like i don't know I, um i've told people know this some people do some people don't my mother was um sang with city opera she was um you know she had a wonderful and still does to this day um range and beautiful depth of her voice um she wasn't a coloratura soprano it's like a mezzo soprano but she has this this range so she would look at me with my little and moments and be like you're going to hurt yourself what are you doing like what is this but i was the opposite and so i you know we have our issues and blah 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 but i do appreciate the fact that she didn't force me to try to become an opera singer because first of all i don't think i have that in me and second of all cuz i respect that level of what that takes to be that and to understand that and then to interpret really like you have to really stick to the composer and and do exactly what it is there's not much room for you know improvisation yeah yeah i love feeling like you're channeling and doing whatever you want particularly with writing and melodies and having those flow through you so i would have been stifled had i had i tried to do what she did because i'm not that disciplined i'm just not that disciplined you know so let me ask because i know that your high register is world famous um uh, i know that in your uh your christmas special especially with uh the the misty copen portion like yes. you're you're singing you're you're singing uh i don't know if it's carol the bells or or, or the nutcracker um it's the sugar the da- um there's an there's an exact title but the sugar plum fairy is what it yeah the sugar okay so you're doing you're doing your your trademark what we call the mariah whistle how how <laughs> how long can you instantly turn that on at any time of the day or do you have to like Seth Riggs work your muscle before you can reach those levels? Like, can you just so he- turn that on at any given moment of, of the day, 24 hours? Uh, it depends. Like, honestly, all of it depends. Like all the different ranges depend on sleep and uh, humidity, mainly sleep. But sometimes it's, it's a weird thing. So I've kind of studied it. And sometimes, even if I'm completely hoarse, the whisper, as they call it, the whisper register, is mm-hmm. even more strong and clear than if I'm not hoarse. Because it's the, it's the, um, the upper register is sort of like that whisper register, sort of like when you're closing the vocal cords and it's the very, very tippy top of what you're using um, in terms of those that upper upper register but if i'm just sitting around yeah i can access it but when i'm on when i feel like pressure it's less um accessible 
than when I'm just sitting around the house, you know, and just playing around and singing. However, like when I'm under pressure, it's always screwed up. Every part of my voice is always screwed up. I'm sitting there because my, my nervousness takes over. And I really am more of a quote unquote studio rat where I love to play around with it, experiment, do whatever, create it as part of the melody. You know what I mean? Like, whether it's upper register, lower, mid, background vocals, layering of background vocals, whatever it is, all of that, even when I do the background vocals and the upper register as a part, for me, that's my instrument. That's fun. Actually, one time James Brown told me, the only first and only time I ever met him, back in the days at the American Music Awards, the first time I was ever there, and they were, uh, can I give you this segue? Because everybody else. Yes. Yeah, uh, yes. Yeah, yeah, we believe you, so. You're, you're already my favorite guest on QLS. Like, I don't <laughs> have to talk at all. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm, I, I'm just like, this is how I talk. We're back and forth with things. So I don't want to be like all over the place. Like, you, know, you know, like when black people eat and they don't say nothing at mama's house because the food yeah. is good. Like this mm-hmm. is us right now. Like <laughs> we're not talking over you or anything. We're just and, like and these stories are our time capsules. This is good too, you know, to, to remember yeah. this and have these and this James Brown. Yes, let's talk about James Brown. Yeah, let's talk about James Brown. I don't know, Amir, if you got the message before when I was playing. Let's make this Christmas. Yeah, I, I was. <laughs> I was. Yeah, you. Let's make Christmas mean something this year. Which is one of my favorite Christmas songs. But it's on my loop of Christmas music. We have that and we have Santa Claus Go Straight to the Ghetto and then many yes. other James <laughs> Christmas quote unquote hits that I've made Christmas hits in my household because I just play the rock. And, and then we get stuck on the James Brown. Part. I'm like, I love you, James Brown, but I need to hear like a little mixture. And right. anyway, so when I, I had never met James Brown, obviously, it was my first year in the industry. And Somebody said to me, I'm, I'm in, um, I'm in the, my trailer. And this is when I was very much sequestered under that Sony world of whatever. Sony prison. Okay. Yeah. Yes. Prior to Sing Sing and all of that. But anyway, mm-hmm. yeah, un- under that thing. And then, so I'm shocked that they even told me that James Brown wanted to meet me. They're like, James Brown wants to meet you. So that's a huge thing. So I, I walk, you know, I'm like, oh my gosh, like, okay, let me go to his trail. Let me do the respectful thing. Let me walk in, see what it is. So I'm sitting there and, and, and we just meet and whatever. And I'm just like shocking off, shocking off. And he's like, I'm not going to do an impersonation of him. But he was like, this. I was waiting for that. <laughs> I was, do it. I was do praying it. you did one of him. Everyone <laughs> has a James Bond impersonation. You guys can do it when I'll tell you the text, but. He yeah. was like, this is no surprise to me. This is no surprise to me. This Basically, the success is no surprise to me. He's like, you use your voice as an instrument. You use your voice as an instrument. So that was a humongous compliment because I know what he's talking about because you can hear when he does those, like, this, this, I'm not sure how we, how we categorize what he does with it did with his voice his primitive he screens know, he knew that like using that upper register is a thing whether you're yeah. doing it as like an, ex, to accentuate something like he would do or whether you're doing it like you were talking about amir with the carol uh, not the carol the bells the um sugar plum fairy sugar plum yeah, fairy, I did yeah. That, yeah did that as an acapella moment for the album prior to this past year which was just a reissue of um, some Christmas songs, but I said, let me do something new. And I did like that little acapella, acapella part with the ha, ooh, ha, ooh, ha, and the high parts on top of that.
Yo, what's up? This is Fonte, Fontigolo from Team Supreme. Black representation in media is very important to me. I think it's important to have our stories told by people who look like us and who have shared in our common experiences. Some of my earliest influences were Donnie Simpson. Uh, I would also say Tom Joyner, Angela Stribling, uh, Sherry Carter. They were just people who told our stories with a lot of class and dignity and were big inspirations to me. The next generation of influential Black voices can be found on NPR's new collection, Black Stories, Black Truths. Black Stories, Black Truths is a celebration of Blackness from NPR. Each of NPR's Black voices are as distinct, varied, and nuanced as the Black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and creating world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account about what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective. From Bobby Schmurder to The Wire, Michelle Obama to Reparations, there's no limit to the range of Black stories, Black truths. Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now, they are the story. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcast, The Center Black Voices. It's NPR Noir. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get podcasts. All right, y'all. You know what season it is. Tis the season for spring breaking and planning our summer travel. And if you're like me, you're already in your Airbnb app trying to find which spot is right for you. Now, listen, while I'm looking to spend all this money, what I'm not doing is thinking about making money with Airbnb. See, you got to change your mind state. Make the money while you're spending the money. How, you say, Laia, do I make the money? Well, you host at your house. And I know what you're thinking. I mean, my whole house? Uh, well, no, you don't have to do your whole house. I mean, you could do a room or, you know, do the whole house. So make some money while you're spending some money this summer. I'm trying to tell you, your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. In the 1980s, Frank Farian was riding high as a successful German music producer, but he was bored. German pop was formulaic, dull, and oh so white. Frank had bigger dreams, American dreams. He wanted to create the kind of music that would rival larger-than-life artists like Michael Jackson or Run DMC. So he assembled a hip-hop duo, two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? One very important element was missing, but Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's biggest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Varian and Ingrid Segui, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Follow Blame It on the Fame wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free by joining Wondery+. Plus. What is your, uh, at least your warm-up ritual? Like, as far as, like, is it a lot of tea? Is it a lot of... Usually, if I do shows with other um, guests or whatever, like, I'll look in their dressing room to see what their writer is. So I'll mm -hmm. see, like, Stevie Wonder's thing is, you know, two giant teas and all these honeys, and then Shaka Khan has a thing where it's Echinacea and whatever, like... Mm -hmm. What it, before live performances, not before your studio stuff. What is mm -hmm. your ritual? Can I just say that I used to have a ritual and <laughs> I've been through many um, facets of that ritual. 
it started when I was a background singer and I was looking at what the other, like the background singers that I really looked up to, i.e. Cindy Mizell um, mm. and, and many other, you know. Tawatha, G, Tawatha and Lisa and all their crew. The whole crew, but I really spent the most time around Cindy before I even had a deal. And I talk about this, a record deal in um, in my book. I haven't even heard from her, but I did a whole, like basically like a, almost a whole chapter about how much I revered her just from mm-hmm. looking at the credits when she would be, when she and Audrey Wheeler would do like a lot of these background parts. And I could tell on like many of these pop records where it clearly wasn't the lead singer doing these parts, right? But it was them with these incredibly beautifully stacked backgrounds. And I was like, oh my gosh, Cindy Mizell. So I wind up in a session for TM Stevens, right? I'm like 18 years old. I'm at this session. I know we just totally went off topic again, but do you want to hear this story? Be on topic, go on. We want all the stories. (laughs) That's my man, TM. It's the topic is relevant because the question was about my rider, but I'm telling you where I got this thing from. We, so yeah, we um, are we are the we're the rabbit hole show. So you're you're right <laughs> on top of it. Okay, cool. So so I'm I, I'm at this this is prior to anyone ever hearing of me. I had a dollar a day. I had to choose between the subway and H and H bagels when I'm living. Yeah. Uh yeah, for real. And I'm above I was living above, you know where Rascals, you guys know where Rascals on 14th Street is on the on the east side. Anyway, that might be you, Steve. No, but I know H and H bagels, and and I hope you chose bagels over Subway every time. Because <laughs> 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 when I lived, when I would go to the H and H bagels, is when I lived closer to the Upper West Side. So the H and H bagels that I used to go to was the one on 79th Street, right? Is that that was that where that one is? I went to the one on Should the up, upper Upper East Side. I don't know. It's gone. It's gone. It's not even there. Oh. I know they got shut down or whatever. But b- back then, that was my meal for the day. So it mm. was either way, subway. And I used to work at this place called Sports on Broadway on 77. Um, and so I would take the subway back and forth. But anyway, I had to decide whether it was walking or eating a bagel. So that's why I was singing when I first <laughs> came out to the public as a singer. Anyway, back to the story. So prior to all that, I was, well, during that time, um, I started getting background vocal um, gigs or whatever. Hmm. And so I wound up, after being a huge fan of Cindy as a background singer and arranger and whatever, I wound up uh, working, doing a session for TM Stevens, and I'm sitting there next to Cindy myself. So I'm like, oh my gosh, this is Cindy. So mind you, I'm there, my shoes have holes in them. I'm in like one little, it probably looked like pretty much like this today, but a little bit different, but anyway. (laughs) Oh, like a million bucks, okay, I get it. (laughs) My stomach was rumbling, we're on the mic, she's hearing my stomach rumbling, she's looking at my shoes, and she's like, you know, beautiful and perfect and everything. And she's like, oh, why don't, you know, you gotta get something to eat. I'm like, yeah, no. And and then she just like, we're doing the thing. And I'm telling you, I did not have it together. She was such a professional in terms of stacking vocals, getting it perfect. The next one has to line up perfectly. You know, I'm figuring that I'm not in the pocket. I'm all over the place. After that session, I really like learned a lot and learned a lot from her. But anyway, um, that was that first song with TM Stevens and she was, and Cindy was like, just call me. And I talk about this in the book too, just call me, you know, whenever, if you want other, you know, if you need anything. And I never want to bother people. So I, I never ended up calling her. Then I saw her for another session. She was like, 
asked, she said, why didn't you call me? I said, well, I just, I didn't know, you know, she's like, no, you're supposed to call me. And I'm like, oh, okay. I don't know the etiquette. I don't know what uh. it is. Anyway, <laughs> we ended up working together over the years, but I will say to answer the question and to circle all the way back, I believe back then it was the maybe the red zinger tea celestial seasonings tea oh, i love red zinger with, oh, yes. with the honey honey bear and like a ton of the honey <laughs> there was a time like deborah cooper and a lot of other singers i was working with they would do deborah cooper sang on a lot of the cnc music factory stuff way back when uh, okay it, gotcha um, really nice person and anyway they used to do cayenne pepper do you ever hear singers that do cayenne pepper to like clear it out if you're I sick if mm-hmm. you're sick yeah it gets it clears like i know erica out. badu uses cayenne pepper a lot in her that's on her yeah. Writer. yeah and i would respect that you know but i i don't that doesn't help me i need like i even drink like tea with milk sometimes like english breakfast oh. you drink mm. milk oh i thought milk is bad for you Wow. That, I know that. Say that. But sometimes for me, it's like coating and it's different yeah. than the lemon, like more of a stripping and stuff. So I don't know. It's really, it's really whatever. And right now we're drinking this and it's absolutely spectacular. Uh, yes, indeed. I use cream cheese. Cream cheese. <laughs> my, my go-to would be uh, for vocals. I always tell people my, it's, it has saved me so many times. Coconut water with mm. pineapple juice. Mm-hmm. That shit has I, saved me so many times. Coconut really? water. I don't like the taste of it, but that shit it's works. So miracles. good. It's a so. coating. It's a coating, and the mm-hmm. pineapple is really good too. I agree. It's just I feel like you try all different things, and I've been through ups and downs with it all. Honestly, for me, this whole year with COVID and everything, not having to sing for my supper and travel around and not get the right amount of sleep, or you know, just be put on this thing where there's a certain amount of stress for me that takes away a lot of stuff. So I'm just like emotionally, like that's where I, like I need to be centered or whatever, but it's being off kind of like taking off work has really helped my voice. I think in a lot of ways, just being able to have like stress free. And so I'm just like singing and everyone's like, Oh, you got to get back in the studio. Like you got to like get back to singing. And I'm like, I know. Uh-huh. But- <laughs> Do you feel like getting back into it? I know you just put out caution, you know, in 2018, but. Are you kind of feeling the itch to drop some new shit? Yes, but honestly, an, a different approach. And I don't even want to go into what it is because when I did Caution, I love some of the songs from Caution, but I don't think I was at the place vocally where I, I could be now. Also, it was rushed. Not that mm. it was rushed. And I'm not, look, my best, most critically acclaimed album. In, in, you know, I think that's because the critics have changed and shifted since back in the days. Like, believe it or not, if you look at the, those things, it's more, the most yeah. critically acclaimed album. But, but what I was going to say is that I didn't have the time I would normally take. And I really wish I did have that time to do a few more records on that album mm-hmm. to just, you know, fully have that. Um, expression, but what are you going to do? Like, it was a much more of like, oh, we got to get her back and have people know she put out a studio. And then they screwed that up with the way they gave away these instant grats. Oh, we're going to do instant grats. Why? Just put this, put this single what is What's an like, instant grat? What is that? Instant grat is when they give away a song rather than have it be a part of an album. So, and I just learned about this two years ago, too. So, oh, like, yeah. Like Gangster you know, BBD? Where? I don't know. Wait, wait, I'm thing. sorry, Fonte. 
Man, that shit, yeah. yeah. I'm sorry for that reference. Wait, for the record, I love that song. I know they're trying to hide it like a redhead stepchild, but I'm sorry. I don't remember that. I remember that. It was you know a jam they did on Fresh Prince of Bel Air. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that was they... supposed to be like their big comeback single, but because it kind of tanked, then they try to act like we never did it. Like, And then they came back <laughs> with Above the Rim, and it was like, yeah, y'all could have just rolled with Gangsta. Right, exactly. exactly. Yeah, but yeah, labels start putting out red carpet records or red carpet singles just to announce an album's coming out without putting it on the record or whatever. But here's the thing. If you do for your actual fans, right? Because my, the Lamely, they don't care about getting an instant grat. They just want to see the record do well. Like, and they want to enjoy the music. So these stupid instant grats, and this is no shade to anybody, we know they didn't have to do it like that. Right. So like the Instagram, here, let's give away, oh, what about an Instagram? Then they put out another Instagram. So at the, that point, you're like three singles in that you gave away for free when you could have just had a whole experience with your fans like this. Yeah, here, let's your product. That's what I'm saying. So it just became like, that's why when you ask the question about like caution and vocally, no, I mean, I, I recorded that at home as well. Um, and walked back and forth. And basically, I have my own little vocal booth that's a really cute vocal booth that they made for me. I, I would name check the company, but right now I can't remember the name. <laughs> but it's quite it's right. And we take it wherever. And it's really cute. It's, it's black and pink and I go oh, inside wow. there and wear it. Oh, um, Yeah, my own little booth. But I recorded most of all of that album pretty much there. And um, what's the studio? Henson. Henson in LA. Former uh, A&M. That's our yes. spot, Steve. Yeah, that, we are the world in right. Yeah, the we are the world. Uh, oh, okay. That that that's one of my favorite places. That's his Joni Mitchell. We are the, the synch- world. Synchronicity and yeah. Didn't we record there too? Yes, yeah, we, we recorded that there. Yeah, and it's the Michael Jackson room, right? Where Michael like supposedly laid on the floor and listened to those speakers. I don't know. They tell many a story. I don't uh, know. No, no, no. He Every... he did record at Henson, but I I got a I don't know which project it was for. But yes, most so famously, main... We Are the World was made there. Mm-hmm. Yes. So, and they have that picture. Of, yeah. All of yeah. that. I think the thing, you know, when you talk about caution, you know, you saying that you didn't feel like you were vocally kind of where you wanted to be. You know, the reason mm-hmm. I think that record was so well received and what I liked about it was that you were it's, it's very hard, you know, for artists that, you know, have, you know, have been in the game, you know, what I'm saying as long as you have and have sold as many records when they quote unquote come back, they end up trying to just copy what the youngest is doing and that uh, shit end up sounding corny. You know what I mean? But I like the way that you were able to kind of do, you know, to compete with what, you know, the contemporary artists were doing, but it still sounded like you. And that was the thing I really liked about that record. It yeah. was it was Mariah, but it was like, yeah, this is her in this context. Like you had a record with Ty Dollar and Gunna and you know what I'm saying? Mm. But it was like, she's still doing Mariah. And I think that, you know, for your fans, you know, uh, for particularly my generation, we just, you know, appreciated the way you came back and was showing like, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm Mariah, but I can still bang with you motherfuckers. <laughs> right. no, I, I, I'm not, this is, and by the way, my fans get really mad when I, they think I shade my own albums or songs. That's not what I'm doing. I'm just saying if it were, yeah. And I appreciate you saying those things about caution the album, because I really do like it as an album, but I'm saying if to put it up against like, and this is not even a fair analogy, but like 
butterfly. I had all the time in the world. I had, I went in there and did what I wanted. I worked in Florida. I worked in New York. I worked wherever I wanted um, and, and, and really put the time into it. But with caution and with the way the record industry is now, we don't have that luxury of time. Like Not at all. Yeah, like some people do. So do you believe in deadlines as in like, okay, well, do you like plan the tour first and okay, I got to finish this album in four months or is the album done when you say it's done, then we move on with the campaign. In like, I don't, mind, yeah. I don't know how it is for upper echelon. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> business. Yeah. Is it like, if you agree, like, okay, we're going to tour the summer from May to September, then I got to have this record out by March. So do you, are you a deadline sticker no matter what, or is it like, this album's not coming out unless I'm goosebump happy about it. Okay, so I would say that that's how it should be, um, okay. and that's how, and that's how it used to be. But one, also one thing that I do want to to your point about touring. I was never a touring artist, in, and that was a deliberate choice, I think, on behalf of certain CEOs of of Sony. <laughs> Mm. Uh, Sony prison. (laughs) Okay. Because there was a conscious effort, and I have no problem with this. Looking back at it, I'm very grateful for it now on some levels. And on other levels, I'm like, I didn't get to kind of like, what's the thing called when you cut your teeth and and you record? Yeah. So I, um, because what's the reason? Because what's the reason? Why wouldn't they they want you to tour? Because it was more. Uh, financially beneficial for me to continue to make album after album after album. Yeah, to record. So if you look at it, and then you look at my first album through when I left, um, well, I was still on Sony, but like through Rainbow, like I just did, and Rainbow was because I wanted to get off the label. So I just did that album in three months. And I still love some of the songs, but I did that like super fast because I was like, I got to get the hell out of this toxic situation. Not because it's Sony, but because of the professional intertwinement that was going on with that Sony situation. Prison. Yeah. yeah. Sing, sing. But, but in the beginning, it was like, just make the records, make the records, make records, sing, sing, like, write, write, rec- you know, all this stuff. And if I didn't want to write, I would I'm sure life would have been easier, but I have the need. I love writing. To me, I'm a writer first and, um, and ranger, and I love being in the studio, but I never, the first tour I did, was really, aside from like promo tours from the very beginning with just um, the, the incredible Richard T and, um, you know, Trey and Patrick McMillan and this whoa, guy. Whoa, whoa, time Gina. out. Richard T was your touring keyboard player? Richard T played on song Vanishing from my first album. Oh, 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 oh. as in studio. Yeah, Vanishing. That's, I love, okay. And that is the. That is the. And then he was an incredibly, I mean, just mammoth in terms of his legendary status. And we did, he did come out and do some uh, shows with me. And then it wasn't always what? Richard T. Obviously, yeah. But these were, this is before there was like people filming, there were people filming and that type mm. of thing. Like I was, he, and then um, I don't know if you ever saw this America the Beautiful performance that I did for the um, NBA playoffs. I know nothing about sports, so I'm saying it wrong, but like you my mean first- the first team, time that you debuted? 
before I went on Arsenio Hall, which was my first like TV appearance. Mm. Yeah, the, the entire world saw that. <laughs> but I was the, right. NBA thing, the NBA thing, where yeah. if you look it up, and it's not only my real fans know it, but Richard T did the piano track. I went there with a track to Detroit. I know nothing about sports, whatever. In retrospect, I'm like, all oh, those kids who said I wouldn't amount to nothing. They were watching. <laughs> those right. jocks from school, they were watching. So I had I had to like do my own hair and makeup. I have my one black dress. I walk in on the thing, and it's Richard T's piano track. You can find it right now, Amir. I'm and looking right and now. I found it. <laughs> it was that Richard T on the piano, and we worked it out together. I sang it with him prior to going there and performing it, but we like uh, did it together in terms of the arrangement. And then I had his piano track and that was it. And I had to go sing and nobody knew who I was. And they introduced me, ladies and gentlemen, uh, Columbia recording artist, Mariah Carey, they're like. (laughs) But then at the end of it, it's the shining sea and the note. And it was like the most, who's the man, I love him. I don't even want him to ever hear this and think I don't remember his name, but I'm so bad with sports. The announcer, and you'll see it if you look it up, and he's like, the palace now has a queen, and the goosebumps will continue. And I talk about it in the book, but I didn't <laughs> name check him, and I would love to name check him. I'm just so bad with sports that I always forget. So am I. So we're like you're in good Marvin company right something, now. probably. Not Marv no, Albert. Oh, probably Marv, Marv Albert. Yes, I think. I don't know. That's not his name, but he's famous. I can't think of it now. But anyway, that was Richard T. And Richard T. played a really big part in that early part of um, development. That's that's impressive company because Richard T. is a legend. I was going to ask, um, did you have to fight to write your own material? Because that was something mm-hmm. that pop singers, you know, they damn near weren't permitted, <laughs> you know, to write their own stuff. So what was that like for you? Well, OK, so that was to me, that was the one thing that I really held tight onto um starting out as like having my first demo so my first demo and some of these songs are not my favorite in retrospect i like the demos better but i was always writing songs from the time i was little i wrote poetry i i heard melodies i did all that but um so when i got my after like working with a few different people and i started working on my first demo um by the time it got into tommy matola's hands that demo had um, the, well, it ended up, the demo ended up being Vision of Love, the demo version, Someday, um, Alone in Love, and uh, ultimately Vanishing. Like the original demo had had at least had um, one number one song, which ended up being Someday. But, you know, that's like my least favorite song. But I like the demo. Really? I hate the record. Wait. Yeah. Oh, wow. so I, I, told, I told her this last night. <laughs> Someday might be inadvertently responsible for my career oh chocolate no no that's not that oh uh, yeah exactly yeah i told oh, you that story yeah, yeah. no yeah, yeah. i just i kind of well, tell, tell a story yeah tell a story no well in, in short uh i was auditioning for um Tariq and i went to new york to audition oh i went to audition uh for colleges to, to uh juilliard and the new school and on the train ride home, some girl thought that I was chocolate playing the 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 bucket drummer. And, yeah, chocolate the is the drug, yeah, the bucket drummer on the Mariah video. Right. right. And also in Spike Lee's well, you know, he was also in Spike Lee's uh Levi's commercial. Yeah. So she thought I was the Levi's guy. When actually I was the Motown Philly guy. So mm-hmm. 
the next <laughs> the next day, Tariq is in my living room, and after a commercial, uh, we're watching Soul Train, and when that Levi's commercial comes on, Tariq was like, "Yo, that girl thought you was the Mariah Carey guy, anyway, so we <laughs> might as well just do that." And then, <laughs> wow, four <laughs> hours later, the Roots are doing their first show on South Street, so. That's yeah. Incredible. Thank thank you to someday. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> I used to I used to always tell people y'all came first. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right, y'all. You know what season it is. Tis the season for spring breaking and planning our summer travel. And if you're like me, you're already in your Airbnb app trying to find which spot is right for you. Now listen, while I'm looking to spend all this money. What I'm not doing is thinking about making money with Airbnb. See, you got to change your mind state. Make the money while you're spending the money. How, you say, Laia, do I make the money? Well, you host at your house. And I know what you're thinking. I mean, my whole house? Uh, Well, no, you don't have to do your whole house. I mean, you could do a room or, you know, do the whole house. So make some money while you're spending some money this summer. I'm trying to tell you, your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. In the 1980s, Frank Farian was riding high as a successful German music producer, but he was bored. German pop was formulaic, dull, and oh so white. Frank had bigger dreams, American dreams. He wanted to create the kind of music that would rival larger-than-life artists like Michael Jackson or Run DMC. So he assembled a hip-hop duo, two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? One very important element was missing, but Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's biggest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Farian and Ingrid Segui, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Follow Blame It on the Fame wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free by joining Wondery+. Plus. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. All right, so you talk about those demos how did you cut those original demos? Because you, if you was couldn't afford, you know, to eat, how did you, how did you afford? Yeah, to and how did you meet Walter? Walter came later. Walter okay. was someone I met through Narda Michael Walden, mm. and he was doing a lot of production for him in that. Um, I'm trying to think of the name of the actual area, and it's like in the Bay Area, kind of up in that San Francisco, but beyond. Thomas Band? I'm trying to think of the name of the studio. You could could find out what it is. But anyway, so Walter was working in that world. But prior to that, way prior to that, and also Randy Jackson was around there. Like, that's how I met everybody on that side. Narda's whole crew, yeah. Narda's whole crew. And he had a lot of really great people, musicians, support system, whole thing. But um, anyway, that's like when I first, before my first record, Everybody was like, oh, she'll go work with Narda. Now, in order to to answer the question, 
to preserve my ability or to ensure my, um, like just being able to, to be a writer and not to be forced to do other people's songs. When I signed my deal, like I said, I already had that demo that had, you know, songs that people could look at and go, oh, she's, she wrote this? Okay. Mm-hmm. But I worked with, um, first I met Gavin Christopher, who did, I'm coming one step What's that closer to you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. I've had I've had three legendary arguments with singers on the internet, and Gavin Christopher is one of them. <laughs> Sorry, <Really? laughs> I haven't seen him since way back then. I haven't seen him since way back then, and apparently he wasn't even really like she's the next star, da da da. But he was cool enough to work with me, and blah blah blah. And then from him, because I was in high school, I was like 16 years old. So right. then from him, I met this guy named Ben Margulies. Blah blah blah. It's all in the book. But we worked in his dad's studio, which for the time, uh, I was lucky to be at any studio. Um, yeah. But it, w- it was a small studio in the back of a wood shop. And, you know, they I guess they must have had some money because I surely didn't. They were like 25, 26, and I was a kid in high school. So I was just happy to be there um, working and writing. and And then I would get up. I, w- I would stay there and then I would try to drive back to the island, try to drive back <laughs> to Long Island, which I, I hated that whole experience. But whatever, I would wind up lost in Brooklyn, at, be by myself, you know, it's no cell phone. I mean, people had cell phones. Ah, no but, GPS. Ah. <laughs> no GPS. And I was just like in this piece of crap, Cutlass Supreme from like whatever, 1980 or something. And I'm sitting there driving, getting lost everywhere. But it was worth it because... I would get there. I would always be late to school. I would, you know, make my fake forged notes and get to school. But really the reason I was late, I could do my mother's signature perfectly. The reason I was late was because I was up working in the studio, but that's, so I started working with Ben and we made this demo with a lot of songs that we wrote. And this year when we released the rarities, there's a few of the song, well, really one song that we wrote together called Here We Go Around Again, which back then I loved the demo, but when we went on to make the album. They just tried to reinvent the wheel because the demo was better. Anyway, so I had these songs and people felt that they could be hits. The label felt they could be hits. So when I was signing my deal, even though I signed like the worst deal in history, because it was really? through that production company, the P- yeah, I don't know if it's the worst deal in history, it's pretty bad. But the one thing, thank God, I didn't do was sell my publishing for $5,000. Oh, because that, yeah. awesome. <laughs> Yeah, that was presented to me as an option. So $5,000 sounded like $500 million to me at that point. Mm -hmm. And luckily I didn't because I had seen a documentary on the Beatles and their whole thing. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And what they gave away. So I knew better than to do that. But when I did sign my deal, the one thing I said to the lawyer, because I knew I was kind of giving away a lot, but you don't know as a broke kid that grew up with nothing, you don't know what a And you don't have the leverage to negotiate for anything better. Yeah. And plus I was too young to even be signing my own record deal anyway. So I I was like, you know, and my mother didn't know. She came into the room and just trying to help, you know, I'm here as the guardian, but she didn't know. So I just said to the lawyer, I said, the one thing I want to make sure is that nobody can force me to do somebody else's songs. Like I just have to make sure that they can't force me to do that. So even when they would direct me to work with producers over the day that they wanted me to work with for whatever they So they forced you to work with Diane Warren or... Mm-mm. No. Or a, a name at the time. 
they didn't force me to work with any songwriters. They, they, they suggested that I work with, be it Rhett Lawrence or Narda Michael Walden or Rick Wake or whoever it was. It was like, wow. you know, work with these people because we believe this is going to happen. But then the ones that I love the best were like the Richard T moment or do you know what I mean? Like things mm-hmm. where it was a collaborative musical experience and you know, where people of that stature were giving me as a kid, as a young woman, which is really difficult, you know, really right. difficult, particularly being female to get any kind of respect and um, all the obstacles you know, just to be able to be like, okay, I don't, I'm not being forced to work with writers. So that was one thing. Nobody ever submitted songs to me. And if they did, I didn't hear them. So that was one thing that I was grateful for. Yeah. No, I, I was going to ask, did they ever, did they ever ask that you write songs for some of the other ladies coming through or anyone? No, at that point, I think it was like, you know what, this is our, we believe in this girl being me. Mm-hmm. Let's get done so it took like a year to actually take what were demos and then the new songs that I would write or do to be this finished product and there was a conscious effort like because I was sitting like when is this going to be done like you know it was just like that and they're like it's fine because we and there was a vision that it would happen and begin in the 90s not like before that so that whole year of figuring it out I do think it was a smart move to not have it out until that um, decade began. I was going to ask, uh, d- does when you were working with Narda, does mm-hmm. he always talk in that mystical voice? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Any, anytime Narda, anytime he talks to me, I, I always feel like I'm being hypnotized at the moment. You know, he's very that. <laughs> he's very zen. You know what I mean? Like he's he's that too guy. zen. I, I get scared. Narda and Erica Badu are two people and I don't want to look in the eye for more than five seconds. So did Erica Badu as well? Yeah, yes. Erica, Erica Erica has yeah. a very hypnotic quality Man. that will have you wearing crochet pants in about a year or so. Stop that. Keep in mind, she's an artist and she's sensitive about her shit. Word. Word. I was gonna ask, um, what was uh working with Walter um a fantasy like? What was he like in the studio? I always admired like one of my favorite, my favorite song of yours is uh, "Can't Let Go," and um, mm-hmm. I just thought that that's just the mm-hmm. that sound that you and him had together was just a very pop, like super clean, and you know, just the, just the sheen that he would have on those records. Um, like when I heard uh, God, just the Bruno Mars record, the Versace on the floor on right, I was like, "Yo, this is him doing Can't <laughs> like Walter." Go. Yeah, I mean, right. yeah, but um, but nah, I just want to know what was he like in the studio because he's not someone I've you know really read or known much about. Okay, well, first of all, thank you. We can't let go. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that. Walter was a great writing partner. I would always try to steer things more in the can't let go direction because mm. because it was a little bit slightly more R and B than black. like other things. Yeah. Translation black. So slightly more in that slightly more there, but you know, we could also do these big sweeping things like Till the End of Time, which only like the lambs would know. And or, I like that song too. <laughs> like you know, the the yeah, it was, like the, it, was, it was the it was the next to last song on your first album. 
Love you to the end of time. Yeah. Yes. But that part, that was when I got to really express myself on the outros, on the, on the, um, you know, doing the background vocal parts, like doing those, uh, arranging that stuff. But I, I really like working with him in that way. There were some uh, incestuous situations where let's just call it the record company and the publishing situations where I don't want to get into very specifics. This is not, I don't know how to say it, but really it was too, um, how do you call it? It was, it, was a bit it was a bit incestuous because people were like, how do I say it? Oh Lord! So it was, like, was it was it like the the label had a piece of Walter? So like they they got I more. I wouldn't want to go over saying that because I don't know for sure. But I'm just okay. saying certain people in my life had that other connection, and gotcha. so Sony I would say Walter is extremely talented. Um, but some, but for the most part, when I'm coming up with melodies and I'm singing it to somebody, like, hey, can you play this? That happened on several songs, and then we would take it to another place because I won't think of if someone plays a chord, I'll be like, no, like I hear it in my head. And then I'm like, that's not it. I don't know how to articulate it. I'm not there going, can you play the inverted? Like, I don't know how to say that. I just know how to hear it. So, so I'll be hearing something and until somebody gets it where I'm hearing it, I'll be like, no, 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 no. And then we get there. And then from there, he and I, I will say had a really good flow with putting stuff together. So it's no shade towards him. I wish him well, whatever, but I will say like, you know, that was a, that was a moment in time and I'm very thankful for it. Um, and also talking about people that have been great writers, uh, writing partners with me, big Jim Wright with Fly Like yeah. a Bird and Circles and all those songs from Mimi. Um, also James Poyser. Now everybody says mm -hmm. Poison. Who's Poyser. that? Guys, don't do that. Can we discuss the actual pronunciation of his name? No, say Poisoner. <laughs> <laughs> I Poisoner. love when people put it in inside of his <laughs> And I don't understand it, but I love him. And we, yeah. so when we, I love working with um, incredibly talented musicians because when I can sing back and forth to them and we can figure things out together and then we can go to another place that's something that I feel is a gift. When I'm sitting there coming up with stuff by myself, I love it, but I know that I need to articulate it to somebody to put it down unless I'm playing, which is the worst thing ever. Although sometimes it's turned out to be to my own benefit because I don't know the rules, so I don't have to follow them. Mm -hmm. So besides Big Jim Wait, Wright, uh, Quest, can okay. I just say uh, I love working with James Poyser uh, too. Oh. <laughs> James, <laughs> I said Poyser, okay? No, no, I I'm, said I'm, no. We, right. we call him Poyser. Say his name, Mariah. Say his J name. I'm just saying, I said James Poyser because everybody else goes says Poisoner, and then right. they confuse me and make me feel like I'm the stupid one. It's paint. It's paint. I even James even Poisoner. for April Fools, I created a James Poisoner Twitter account just to confuse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the real the real secret is James Poisoner is just Nelson George's side project. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> no comment, no comment. But when Christmas comes, which we wrote together, is one of my favorite Christmas songs, and I really have. I really feel like it's a much more look. We love all I want for Christmas is you, and I thank the good Lord above that yes, I indeed. wrote it. Yeah, sat there coming up with a like, and then when I did sing that to Walter, he and he's been on record as saying it. Why are you trying to do scales as a song? Like, why is that? Why would you want to do that? Like, 
He didn't think he didn't hear it immediately as a thing. How long did it take to record that? Which part? No, the song. I I, I have a theory about mega songs. Every mega song that's larger than life takes seconds to do. So, like, how long did it take to to write, not execute and record, but just to write the general song that we know? So the so there was an idea do a Christmas album. And at that point at 22 or whatever, I was like, little early, little early. Um, and then I said, okay, well, I love Christmas. I always have, you know, let me think about it. So, you know, I was sitting in this house in the Hillsdale of New York, yeah. as I named it Hillsdale and just started thinking like, what are the, I, what are the things that I loved as a, a kid with Christmas songs and what are all the things that made me feel Christmas Day, even amidst the bleakness of my childhood. So I started sitting there and there was this keyboard. I believe it was some side of some sort of really, really cheap like Casio keyboard or something. And again, I'm I I'm not a player, I just write a lot. So I was in there and I'm like I just started like channeling and trying to figure out how to play it. So by the time I brought it to Walter, I had done everything but the bridge. Oh, the lights are shining, you know, because I honestly couldn't probably do that transition like as a, as a keyboard player, which I'm right. so not. But so we did that part and then we brought it back to the, oh, I don't want to laugh all in So I would say the writing, my part, I had the lyrics done, except for the bridge. I had the, everything done really quick. Like it was just immediate. You know, it's, it's like with Hero, I had a they explained the song, the, the, sorry, the movie, there was a movie by Dustin, with Dustin Hoffman, whatever. Tommy Mottola came in, hey, Luther's doing a song for this movie. They want you to write this song for Gloria Estefan. You know, it's about a guy that saves people on a plane. That's pretty much what I heard, right? <laughs> and so I was never alone at that point in my life. And I'm pretty much, I rarely still am. But anytime I would walk to the bathroom and I wouldn't be followed by somebody's goons or whatever, I would walk in, I had two minutes, I go in there and I'm and I start hearing that and then a hero comes along, like the melody and the piano part, right? And so then I walk back in, I'm like, well, this is how it goes. With a stretch, carry on. Right. So I'm like, I'm like all excited, like, just write this dude, this dude. And then I'm like, I'm like, so wait, who do they want this for? They want it for Gloria Estefan, right? And Tommy's standing there and he's like, I think you need to keep this one for yourself. <laughs> so it was a similar thing with All I Want for Christmas is You, except that I was by myself in the room at first and then wrote those lyrics down and then went and, and sang it to Walter and we finished it from there. But the actual recording of the record took a while and it was a collaboration. And, you know, I'm not taking anything away from him, but there was a concerted effort to make it feel like a classic, which I've noticed people have adapted that um, type of, a, of an uh, Approach? Yeah, I, I like the I like the um the Phil Spector nod. I love the Phil Specterness of it, but I would like to note that you know bef when when I woke up this morning to pre prepare for this interview, I was listening to it. All I want for Christmas is used probably the happiest song with the most minor note keys in it. Like there's so much dark chords and minor chords in this song, but like that like because people don't expect it to go there exactly like it's 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 a very unlikely because usually christmas is associated with 
I mean, every Christmas song practically has like happy chords, happy major chords. And I'm trying to figure out how did the song manage to jump over the pack because it's it's there's so many chromatic and 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 dark chords in it that are more blues based or black you know like black chords mm-hmm. yet mm-hmm. it it works and I'm tr- like that's a hard thing to achieve cuz you know I know that most pop hits have some sort of major chord element that feels inviting and not mm-hmm. to say that blues chords don't work and aren't successful. Like, you know, there's plenty of them out there. But usually in Christmas songs, it's like that. Like, as as far as, like, structuring the song, was there back and forth and sort of, uh, you know, conflict as in to how bright the song should be as opposed to how it came out? Because it's, it's, it's an achievement that is such blues-based but still, I don't know if I'm I'm saying it the right way. No, 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 I, no, I, I, get what I, I know what you mean, and it's interesting because Mark Shaman, when we the incredible Mark Shaman, orchestral genius, um, yes. who I worked with, starting on he wrote the yeah. South Park movie. That's like my favorite thing he's ever done. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I love him, and he is the most irreverent, just hilarious person, and super talented and everything. But when we first got together, he was like, "Don't think I didn't hear." I just want you for my own. Like, you know, that little, that exactly. little part. Right. Yeah, but I don't think I didn't hear that. So, so here's the thing, because like I said before, I don't know the rules. I don't follow the rules. I just know what I hear. And specifically on that one, it was just like, like, I don't know. I just heard it. You know what I mean? I didn't do it like here I am trying to be bluesy. Here I am trying to be scientific, high. right? I don't How know. I like, honestly, and I think that's why Walter was like, "Well, why?" And that he said in that interview, which I don't know, I'm sure it can be giggled, but you know, it was like these scales and just trying to be. I wasn't trying to do anything like that. I don't even know how to um, break it down and 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 explain that. I just know that that's what I heard, and I heard it with the with you know, the lyrics and then wrote them down, but it was very specific to me. And I recorded it on my little tape recorder that I had back, you know, the mini tape recorder and you just <laughs> held mm-hmm. it kind of smaller than an iPhone, but like you yeah. know, thicker. And so I had that and I recorded it on there. And I don't know, like, I agree the, when it gets poppy is the, you know what I mean? Like that part's poppy yes. because the backgrounds were, such incredible um, singers and because of the way we arrange it, like it, you're fine with the poppiness of it at that point. The whole thing, unless we're getting analytical about it, is pop, but you're right. Those changes came from me because I didn't know any better. I didn't know, oh, let me just make this like up and happy and, and festive mm-hmm. and we won't dark the chords. But like in the book, I talk about how my Christmases as a kid, I always wanted them to be perfect. I always wanted them to be great. And I have these ex-family members who really destroyed every year. So Mm. I think when writing the song just by myself in the room, not dissimilar to where I'm at right now, looking at the Christmas tree by myself, just thinking about stuff, kind of feeling whatever is happening in, in the air. And I do feel like when you're writing, if it's a real, if it's a connected moment, you are channeling, you know, and um, I know that's, that's, we know that 
but right. not everybody understands that. I'm not saying with some genius revelation, but that's what happened. So it was just like, this is what I'm hearing, you know, and this is what I think would be good. I never was like, oh, and then blah, 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 years from now, we're going to break the Spotify record. All right, y'all. You know what season it is. Tis the season for spring breaking and planning our summer travel. And if you're like me, you're already in your Airbnb app trying to find which spot is right for you. Now, listen, while I'm looking to spend all this money, what I'm not doing is thinking about making money with Airbnb. See, you got to change your mind state. Make the money while you're spending the money. How, you say, Laia, do I make the money? Well, you host at your house. And I know what you're thinking. I mean, my whole house? Uh, well, no, you don't have to do your whole house. I mean, you could do a room or, you know, do the whole house. So make some money while you're spending some money this summer. I'm trying to tell you, your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. In the 1980s, Frank Farian was riding high as a successful German music producer, but he was bored. German pop was formulaic, dull, and oh so white. Frank had bigger dreams, American dreams. He wanted to create the kind of music that would rival larger-than-life artists like Michael Jackson or Run DMC. So he assembled a hip-hop duo, two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? One very important element was missing, but Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's biggest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Farian and Ingrid Segui, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Follow Blame It on the Fame wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free by joining Wondery+. Plus. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. So I've learned ever since I've, I've gotten to know you, I know that there's a term called Mariah Hours, um, uh-huh. of which, uh, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen out there, this is the one of the first episodes that we've taped. <laughs> the only, the first, the only episode the only. we taped. Most of our I'm episodes sorry, are done in, in. I'm sorry. And no, it, no, no, no. and, and listen, not to not to be your daddy, but even when we did Quincy Jones. <laughs> oh Jesus Christ. <laughs> It was at a respect. I forgot <laughs> Quincy was just no. Quincy wasn't this late. Like right now, no. it's it's two in the morning where we are. But I'm sorry, I, you guys. Are you right? Tell me what. Stop no, apologizing. No, nah, it's all good. We on COVID <laughs> time anyway. Ain't nobody sleeping. Yeah, ain't nobody got no job. <laughs> so, <laughs> what what I want to have you always kept Mariah? Like when do you wake up? When do you wake up in the morning? Like what is your daily routine? Because I know like three in the morning is sort of like you're 12 in the afternoon. What? Yeah, you're right. And I don't have, I don't have, when I'm working, which when I say working, I mean promo, not in the studio. When I'm in the studio, you know, and the best place for me to be in the studio is wherever feels the best. So like we said, um, Capri, 
the Bahamas, wherever. It's just on the schedule of when. Now, I'm not, I don't mean writing. If there's like a whole, like what I would love to do again is a whole bunch of writers get together. We're in a place. We work at a respectable hour, whatever that is for everybody, the later the better. But we, you know, we all get together. We come up with stuff if, if we're doing that. Like I did that on this song called Subtle Invitation in the Bahamas. We were working at um, Compass Point Studios. And, um, you know, one of That's my still around? Places. I don't know. This is back. This is um, early mid two thousands. Uh, the the Chambers oh, album. Compass Point, world oh. famous. Uh, where Sly and Robbie and Grace Jones, everybody wow. made classic yeah. records. Tom Tom Club, Tom Tom Club, and wow. yeah. I believe any anybody on Island Records like practically recorded down there. So continue. So you're there, and you know whatever you're working on, whatever the time schedule is, and. Now, what I've realized with recording vocals, so that's the only thing for writing, but with recording vocals, I just have to get up, and luckily my engineer is cool enough to be like, okay, we're working on MC time, like, okay, we do a drink coffee, like, give me two hours, be, you know, heads up, I'll get my two, three hours, you know, we'll, we'll do a thing where it's like, not before 10, so we know that usually means midnight, but, you know, we, didn't, we know it's not going to be before 10, so he sleeps, I sleep. And we just get up when my voice is ready to, to work. Um, but in terms of like Mariah hours, this started for me when I was six years old because my house felt very unstable. And there was always like teenage people and whatever happening, you know, freaking seances, whatever the hell was going on was happening <laughs> and, it felt, and it felt unsafe. And so I would lay in bed and kind of be scared and I wouldn't be able to sleep. So over the years, it just became like I stayed up because I had to develop this kind of like person in charge. Like, here's my reflexes, like in case something has to happen. Yeah, it's defense mechanism. Yeah, defense. I'm the grown up in the scenario. Like mm -hmm. something may happen and I'm going to be awake to handle it. So that started as like a six year old kid. And it's all detailed in the memoir. But yes, mm -hmm. that's what happened. The reason I say that is because I'm not explaining it as eloquently as I would like for people to hear it and to understand. You know what I mean? But to answer the question. You know, I'm going to get on that next because I didn't even start with the book yet. But <laughs> but wait, can I so ask about the time things that you did mention the time? Because, I mean, you, she, you've been mentioned in the book a little bit, but in the book, you do talk about like your whole concept of time and acknowledging and whatnot. And not to go over it, because like you said, it's in the book. But I was curious. <laughs> I was like, the one mm -hmm. thing you didn't mention was when you developed this concept of not acknowledging time, it reminded me of something my grandmother used to say, because people would always ask her how old she was. And she would say, I'm too, too old to be young, too young to be old. And that's it. Don't ask me anymore. But, <laughs> oh, <I> that, like <laughs> that. <laughs> but, but that being said, like, when did that concept to you start developing? Like, I don't need to acknowledge this time thing at all. Let's just... I turned when I when I was 18 prior to getting my record deal. Right. Yeah, I had, I had a, I guess as a boyfriend, it wasn't really like that deep of a thing. There was no actual whatever, la 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 la. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you'll you'll get to know. I'm very prudish. I'm very prudish. People don't know, but I don't talk about certain things. That's just how I am. <laughs> but um, you know, and then that's really as a response to like people I saw growing up that were the opposite, that were very promiscuous, that had all these situations going on. And I just never wanted to be like them. But anyway, so when I, so when I was 18, I cried. And my boyfriend, you know, God bless him for tolerating my prudences, but he was like, why are you crying? 
And I'm like, because I didn't, I don't have a record deal yet. Like this is supposed to be happening when I was 12. What is going <laughs> on? And I, I didn't understand it. And I was, <laughs> I just, I was so, my work ethic was insane. People don't understand. Yes, you can be born talented. Yes, you can be born with whatever the look is or whatever it is. But if you don't have that work ethic, mm, it's nothing. Not, unless you have somebody that shines down upon you from above and does all the work for you, True. it's really not, most likely not going to happen because it, you just have to have that, like, I'm going to do this regardless. I believe in it and I know it is going to happen. So in terms of like doing it when I was young, like I was, I just had this thing where, oh my gosh, like this is supposed to be happening. It's a young person industry. Like this is me as a kid knowing this. So um, I'm very thankful though, that it didn't happen when I was much younger, like that I, that I didn't get those Broadway show things I wanted to be in as a 10 year old because I was quote too tall, but we know, we know that's not what it was. Right. So, <laughs> quote too tall. You're too tall. <laughs> you, you serious? Know, that was tall. like one of their excuses. That was from Annie. Let's face it. We oh. know I wasn't. Oh, oh no, you wasn't. Yeah. Oh, sorry, boo. No. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, oh, not life for real. <laughs> no, no, too tall. <laughs> but, but I, but I realized, like in retrospect, like I mean, I'm not putting myself in this category in terms of talent or God-given talent. But when you look at Michael Jackson and you look at how he really never had a childhood, like, and then he became this hugely, you can't even call it what it what it was. But I mean, like. I was just thankful at least I had somewhat of a childhood dysfunctional as it was that wasn't a famous person's childhood because I feel like that really screws people up beyond repair sometimes, you know, but in terms of like, how did it make me feel to just to not acknowledge time? I just decided, you know, anniversaries, no birthdays. It is what it is. Keep it pushing. I don't know. Okay. So Mariah, I, I guess I should say, I was going to say, I guess I should start with, but it's 90 minutes into it. So uh, <laughs> our our good friend, Eliana Diaz of Rock Nation, uh, former Fallonite. Now she's probably going to be president in 10 years. Um, sent me a box uh, with your book in it. And uh, it came with uh, tissues. And I was like, Okay, that's interesting. What am I supposed to cry when I read this book? <laughs> Whatever. Um, and so I took the book home, and this is like prime COVID, where like one of the one thing I stuck to was my promise to read more books. Like I just stopped reading books pre like March twenty twenty. Maybe I did like one or two books a year. Um, and this mm -hmm. year, I like okay, I'm gonna just run everything, dust off. I, you know, 16 books, whatever. So, you know, I said, all right, let me, let me read the first three chapters, see if I'm gonna learn anything about it, about her. And, um, you know, about chapter three, I was like, wow, okay, this is engaging. I'm like, let me, let me see what the next three are into. So when I got to the fifth chapter, I crept in your DMs and I was like, <laughs> yo, you, you write a good book. And, the thing that and Laia actually texted me this last night. She said, and I sent you what she said. Uh, Laia said that the way that Mariah describes food is making 
me hungry. And <laughs> I was like, yo. And I showed Laia my my first text to you, which is basically, I was like, yo, I've written two books about food and no one has described Ritz crackers so eloquently <laughs> than Aww. you have. Oh, the Ritz and then, crackers. And then I was like, all right, well, I had to take this like long trip to Philadelphia. And I was like, all right, let me get the audio book, listen to it in the car. And hearing you narrate this audio book was almost like a, a your own podcast. And I was like, well, now I got to start yeah. from the beginning again. Yeah. And I have to say that this was for me, like sleeper surprise of the year. Like this book has humanized you in a way I didn't think was possible. Not that I thought that you were subhuman or, or super like most, most black people, especially black achieving people, they're either like, you know, on the high level of, you know, credit to their race and da 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 da. And they're superhuman or they're subhuman, but like, we're never like, we're never neutral. And I love the fact that this book puts you as a black person in a space where black people are rarely allowed to be, which is human. First of all, I would like to know, because most most memoirs or autobiographies, I don't trust them. That's why I like oral history is better, because you at least get a taste of everyone's opinion. Right. But what made you want to be so transparent and, and, and blatantly honest in this book? Because that's what I wasn't expecting. Well, I've been wanting to write this book for years. Like... I think first of all, I just wanted when I when I first so I had the opportunity to work with a very big, like probably the biggest publishing house that there is when I was pregnant, right? That's when I wanted to write the book. I'm like, here I am. I'm I can't go anywhere. It's basically like COVID, but it's not COVID, but you're pregnant with twins and you're on bed rest <laughs> and you can't go anywhere. And I was like, all this, all my life, all my life, I wanted to, you know, write this, write my book, write my story. So I, so I wanted to do it at that point. And I really um, had this great relationship, a very um, just beginning of a relationship, but I felt a kinship with Michaela Angela Davis who I wanted to work on the book with, right? And then this publishing house, um, the, the person at the top, of, she was the editor-in-chief. And she said, I don't want you to collaborate with anybody because I believe that your voice is going to transcend, you know, you need to have the, it be your voice. I'll be your editor and you just do it. And mm. I was like, you know what? That's huge. And I thank you for believing in me on that in that way. But I really want to work with Michaela. And so I didn't do the book at that point, but I started just putting together like some of the stories and whatever. Can you just tell us, I'm sorry, I don't mean to pause you, but can you just tell people, because I'm a big fan of hers, but can you tell everybody why you were so adamant about Michaela? Well, we, okay, so Michaela Angela Davis is a brilliant writer. And she, we first met when I did the Essence, my, my first and only Essence magazine cover which in and of itself just to make that happen at that point, because there were so many quote unquote issues with my image and how black women would perceive me and how, you know, could it happen? And is this going to happen and whatever. And it was a really important thing for it to happen for me because being black and of mixed race, there's always been this, 
you know, the stigma that, that white people have, but then there's this thing, this thing where lightness is perceived as, um, privilege, privilege. But really, if you're put in the situations that I was put in as a kid, where you're only in white neighborhoods, and this is nothing, they can't help it. You're put in this situation <laughs> where you're not, you're not dark enough to scare them into not saying anything or even remind them, oh, let me not say this because it might offend this person because they're strictly looking at it like that. But then when they're all around you, like I talk about it in the book, whatever, mm-hmm, whatever. You like, do. I, no, I, no, I think it's important that people hear it in the way that it's described in the book because to just flippantly talk about it is why people were like, oh, why did you take so long? And now you're embracing your blackness. I'm like, there was never a non-embrace of it. What right. did you expect? do i can't i can't tattoo it on my forehead i guess i could have i mean i maybe i should have i don't really want to tattoo on my forehead but you know well, so like yeah the vision to collaborate with old dirty bastard that's the blackest move ever yeah but it, 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 it was an interesting question as you listen to your story in the book though because I, that's what i kept thinking to myself as i listened to you talk about how like your dad and you didn't really talk about that kind of stuff that much as i know about like your mom didn't talk about that stuff that much and it's, it's getting to know you and understanding that like this has been an interesting journey for you in that way of that side of your life so right. I, I i always wondered as i was listening i was like so i wonder what was that moment because i haven't gotten to it yet in the book where you were like right. I, I, maybe it was the Bronx, uh, not the Bronx cousins or whatever, when you were like, this is me, I'm proud, I see it, you know, and there's a pride there. Yeah, what happened was there was never a lack of, I see it, I'm proud. It was always, you take a child, you don't explain to them how to understand who they are, right? Mm-hmm. You have a divorced family with a black father and a white mother who was from the whitest place where the KKK was born in Springfield, Illinois. Mm -hmm. Um, And you have her family that had disowned her. Well, her family didn't even know she married my father. Only her mother knew. So she didn't tell anybody. And that, imagine how you feel like, Mm -hmm. because of who my father is, and ultimately that, that means because of who and what, I am and my siblings who I don't talk to, whatever, because of what we are, we are considered subhuman to them. So we don't exist and they don't even know that we exist actually, because that's how big of a, that's how big of a thing it was that my mother did this. So it was the ultimate sin against her whiteness to her family and to her world. So to be honest with you, like she was very into civil rights, according as the Mm -hmm. story goes, and she marched with Dr. King mm-hmm. before and all these things. But so I heard more about that from her than I really heard from my father because I feel like my father was always trying to, in his own way, assimilate, understand who he was um, and what he went through because he was very like he, you know, he was, he just didn't really feel like he fit in in, in any place either. So wow. we never had conversations till he was on his deathbed. But back to the thing about the book and why I felt I wanted to write with Michaela was because we had these conversations um, in a way that I never had a conversation with another, certainly not a writer previously. And we connected on that level and we couldn't get into every detail. How can you talk, how can you encapsulate a lifetime Mm -hmm. of experiences Mm -hmm. in a 20 minute interview with a magazine where the editor is gonna then 
give you what they want it to look like. How they, what's the angle? You know what I mean? Like, Was, is Michaela, is she mixed race as well? Um, I'm down the line, but she's, you know, her family's black. She's light skin. She's very Michaela Angela Davis. You know what I mean? Like she's. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I got it. Yeah. It's a different struggle when you're placed in an environment that you don't belong in. So you're you're like fish out of water and with people saying stuff around you that they would never say and you have to figure out you have to figure out how do I handle this? How do I how do I combat this? How do I exist? How do I survive without anybody giving you the talk? Without anybody, yeah. you know, and so there was never there a discussion about race in your house. There was never, no one ever sat you down and was like, you know, listen, you are a black girl and this is what no. that entails. Wow. No, no, it was, you're interracial and that's what you tell everybody. I'm like, but we don't know what that means. <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> like, they don't know what this means. That's why, yes, my cousins were always like, when they were, my cousins from the Bronx, Cece and Chris, who we love, you know, on the few occasions when I'd be at my grandfather's house in Queens and the kids would be like, that's not your cousin, she's white. And they would stick up for me and they would be like, no, she's not white. This is our cousin, she's black, she's our cousin. Like, that was the only time there was like that unified, like, we got you type of a thing, you know, but it's, it was difficult because there's also the thing about money and not having money. So I think if it was like a family unit where the parents, don't forget my parents divorced when I was like three or four years old. So there's that. And there's my father living in his own neighborhood and me and my mother living in like 14 different places without the siblings, without anybody else to connect to say, we got you like no matter what these other people are saying. And again, they didn't know how to interpret it. They also, it was considered their biggest insult to say to someone, is your father black? Like this was shit they would say behind my back. And then ultimately to my face, if when you, you know, in a different way, when you read the book. Did you ever um, play again with that little girl, Becky, that ran crying when she saw your dad? Did, did you guys ever mm. meet again? <laughs> no. Mm. Read the no. book. There was, a, I'm just saying. there was a girl named Becky and I'm sure she was white. Yes. So a white girl named Becky saw your dad and started running. <laughs> Oh, I, I no. believe that Becky knows who Mariah Carey is right now. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm sure that incident really impacted upon her. Like, it was literally, she had never seen a Black person in her life before. So, Shit. yeah, so we, and we were in this lily white neighborhood that my mother chose to live in, and then this was my friend, and there were no questions asked, like, what are you, this and that. I think that's before my hair retexturized. Right? So I'm still really little. <laughs> <laughs> And, you know, we go to my dad's house and I talk about it in the book, obviously, but she just was frozen and then she just broke down. And then my mother like escorted her. For some reason, my mother knew to like linger. My mother escorted her out. (laughs) And it was just like, I'll never forget it. I'm sure she probably remembers it, but maybe she blocked it out. I don't know. I don't know, darling. I don't know. (laughs) How much uh, control or... Well, I, well, from from the context of what you said earlier, it sounded like you had like really no control. <laughs> but um, you know, when you're when you first signed to Columbia, um, mm-hmm. who or how did you decide or what role did you play in your imaging and in your packaging? Mm. Because they marketed you very much as you know, like just the pop 
kind of girl and like you know they kind of just marked you as a white woman now us you know we yeah. could look at you and we knew <laughs> <That is so laughs> you know terrible. what i'm saying <laughs> like we was like mm, uh, i hear what y'all saying but you know like so like we knew but something that smells familiar yeah yeah, yes. yeah. It's like, i see i see them curls that's I see, you know what right. I mean I, I see yeah so yeah what was what talk us through that process like just kind of your identity being formed for you in a way that maybe you didn't have any say so over I would say that the marketing is its own thing if you look mm-hmm. at the actual first album cover and the back of the first album cover my first album cover Mariah Carey right mm-hmm. yeah what would you have done to display my blackness differently just tell me like visually it was just your face because it was just your face in black and white yeah it was my natural hair yeah you know additional curls put in it and then the (laughs) back cover it curvature and stuff like that like i'm just trying to ask like how do you think that i could have made it more clear other than telling people that my father was black my mother's Mm. white how how could we have Unless it was, should I have adapted a different hairstyle? Should it have been like, Damn, I'm just curious. Right. Had the pressing no, curl? No, that's <laughs> deep. That's deep. No, you, you're yeah. right. You're right. No, you're right. That's deep. Yeah. And in asking that question, I wasn't like, it wasn't a blaming of you or anything like that. I was just, it was just something that like we all just kind of noticed and it's I mean, a, in terms of what And it's a conversation different. worth having. Yeah, because people did. But you, you're right. Like, I was just me. No, I was me. Now like, I, honestly, I, yeah. it wasn't even like, on that album cover, I had like straight hair and blue contacts and, you know, none of that. Like, it's the same nose. It's the same, like, you know, I can't help it. I talk about it in the book. I don't have an upper, an upper lip that, I, you know, they told me the black people would be like, oh, your lip is too small. The white people were like, um, your lip is really full. And I'd be like, what? Yeah, but, yeah. You yeah. know, I, I think the marketing, marketing wise, they definitely skewed it pop. They definitely wanted adult contemporary pop. There's no question in my mind. But at that point, how the hell do I know the different charts? I don't know. I mean, by the way, Vision of Love was number one on the quote unquote R&B charts before the pop charts. So Mm -hmm. I often refer to that because that makes me feel a sense of pride. But there wasn't like a black music department at that point. Was black music department thing a thing, or was it even a? Yeah, it was. It was. Okay, I, and okay. to your point, they really skewed me away from that. But I did work with the black music department, and that was when Ruben Rodriguez was running. Um, oh, Ruben! Oh, Ruben! <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, and lambs, that concludes part one of our special two-part interview with the one and only Mariah Carey. Make sure you come back for part two of the Questlove Supreme special with the one and only Mariah Carey. All right. See y'all then. Hey, this is Sugar Steve. Make sure you keep up with us on Instagram at QLS and let us know what you think and who should be next to sit down with us. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast. Love Supreme is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.
Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. I'm so excited to tell you JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. What I love about Walker Hayes is his laid-back nature. He's a family man and being a country megastar while also having seven kids. You know he likes to keep his style cool and casual. This new collection is perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear, affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th. Just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count.